The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 135. At the end of the episode, I will share chapters 14 and 15 from Beyond Brightside. Hope you guys are digging that story. Um, man, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on, but I'm also doing an incredible job of not doing much work and trying to stay grounded and doing the important stuff, enjoying life, not getting caught up with what I feel like I should be doing, you know, that I should be doing something productive every day. Uh, fortunately, I have a good friend I lift with every day, this guy, George, I uh, went to high school with him. Um, so every day this week we lifted and we tried to do that every week. We try to get at least like three different workouts in the morning, like at 8.30. Um, difficult to do at times because, well, he works from home. He's got to get to work. Same for me. I want to, you know, when I drop the kids off at school, I want to go right home, start working, get all this kinds of stuff done. I have so much that I could be doing for the release of the book, for the release of the next book, for working on all these other try not to dies that I'm creating. So there's no shortage of work. If I, the old me would probably just want to work all day, every day until it was all done and it would never be done. So my whole life would be spent working, never appreciate anything. Um, I've never taken the time to appreciate the launch of a book, never really to celebrate it, to really promote it. Um, so I'm going to force myself to handle this one different. One of the really cool things that I realized I want to do is go around to the different MMA gyms that I interviewed guys at um, and hand out copies of my book to lots of these fighters, lots of these, and and doing the same thing with uh, different universities and different high schools, offering them copies of the TBI book for their coaches or administration, people that are in charge of their uh, sports departments, just to give them a heads up on, um, you know, traumatic brain injuries, how they can present much later, you know, years and years, decades after the fact, after these hits, um, you know, so many people I talk to have no idea that that's even a thing. It's like, okay, we had a concussion or we had multiple, multiple concussions while playing football, whatever sport it might be, but we thought we were fine. We thought we were through, we got through it, no problem. Um, you know, but it's not until you're in your thirties and forties, you're like, oh shit, maybe there is something going on, you know, with, in, with my brain, with my brain health, maybe it's not as ideal as I thought. And it's really hard to connect the two because they're so, you know, so long ago, you know, so, and a lot of people don't remember having car accidents or falling and hitting their head really hard or whatever it might be. So very anxious to get that out there. Um, looking for readers. I don't even care. I'm giving away so many copies. Um, I just want people to read this thing, tell their friends about it, tell their family about it. Um, one of the big selling points for me is telling everyone what it did for my mom and how it uh, we fixed her sleep through neurofeedback. And now, you know, she tests, she no longer tests as pre-dementia. Uh, her attention and focus went up so much. So at any age, you know, you could improve your brain health. It doesn't matter what was the cause of the injury. You can definitely improve it. So that is my message. That's what I'm really trying to get across. So my days um, are looking way more, diff uh, <clears throat> much different than they used to be. 
especially yesterday, the kids had off. So I did almost no work yesterday. Yesterday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Fridays, uh, George and I usually work out uh, with weights. We're getting stronger. Uh, I'm only about half as strong as my strongest. Uh, but I have improved so much in the last like three to four months that we've been lifting. Uh, and that's what I'm going by. And it was a good, it was a good lesson, lesson to tell my kids too, just how proud I was of myself for, well, I think it was like when I started bench pressing again, it was just pitiful, like maybe 115 for 10 reps. Now it's like up to, you know, one, 175 for 10 reps. My best was 335, 355 for 10 back when I was playing football. I was like, I probably will not ever hit that again. And, but I'm, I'm okay with that. Right now, it's all about feeling good, uh, getting stronger. Um, and it's crazy how much that affects me the rest of the day. So that's something really cool. But on Thursdays, we just kind of rest up. Sometimes we'll start um, we'll start with yoga on Wednesday, on Thursday mornings. Lots of times it's just really light, really easy. Yesterday, my son was home, so he was able to join in on some of it. Um, and again, it's another good lesson for him. But hey, man, look. Not only it's it's important that George and I are meeting up in the mornings and getting a workout, but it's not always about pushing really hard. Sometimes we got to relax. Sometimes we need to stretch. Sometimes we just need to unwind. And that's what yesterday's was. So uh, my son was out there with us for part of it and just laying with me. And it was super cool, super relaxing. Um, and I needed it because my legs are so sore. And my, my entire body is so sore. Uh, but right after that's finished, um, I jump inside and I get on my guitar lessons with Marco Tullius, uh, which is awesome because I know nothing about guitar. Like it's, I can play some songs on musician, but I never learned anything about music, never anything about scales, nothing. So um, it's really cool to get these lessons and to get my practices. So every day last week, um, and this is the first time since I've had a guitar that I've done this. Every single day I picked it up. I didn't take any time off. Um, they weren't always uh, very long practices, but I made sure to do what he was, the exercise that he gave me plus one or two songs. So at the very minimum last week, I did about 10 minutes every day. Um, some days were like 30 or 40, but it was, I definitely saw an improvement. And again, it was cool to see, okay, if I put in the time, then I will start to get better. Um, yesterday's class was awesome. He gave me some new assignments. So I'm looking forward to hitting those. Uh, and I could tell just what a big difference is gonna make. Like, I think before I didn't think I could understand it or ever get good at guitar. But I was like, okay, if I start doing these practice, like for sure I'll get good. It's just a matter of reps. Like I won't be as good as my heroes are, but I can, I'll be able to play music. So that is the most important thing. Um, another cool thing I've been doing, I've been practicing German with my son. He's really been the one pushing me and wanting me to do it, which is good. And so I've been encouraging him. Uh, I said we could do whatever language, but he knows how much I'm always listening to German and uh, my music. And so he's pretty proud of himself for like his pronunciation is really good. Uh, he's starting to learn it. He He's attracted to the app and, and the way that it tests you. Um, so he's thinking of it like, you know, the language is a new puzzle he's got to figure out. It's just one more cool thing like, okay, can I do this? And it's going to help him immensely. So not that he's going to go anywhere and speak German, but that he's working his brain a different way. And which is why I started it in the first place. It was never to, you know, become fluent at German. It was just to simply work my brain and to uh, do that shit. So uh, what else happened this week? Oh, this week I almost put a cat through the wall. 
because I got rid of my the back of my chair. I so I used to sit on a black chair but had a back. My cat would always jump up onto my shoulders. Well, jump onto the chair first, then onto my shoulders. This motherfucker. The other day, I'm just sitting at my desk, um, and I didn't have a shirt on. And he just jumped onto my back, latched on. I had to reach around behind my back to try to get him off. So he was probably on me for like a solid second or two. It hurt like hell. Um, I was not happy with him when I got him off of me. My wife reminded me this dude's been doing it since he was a little kitten. Um, used to be cute. He used to go like when, when he was small, he would be on our kitchen table. Anyone walking by, he would like just jump and leap onto him. So he's always kind of had that in him. But uh now, yeah, I'm kind of traumatized downstairs. So I, uh, if I'm sitting here, last time I'll put my back to the wall or I'll just make sure the door is closed and he's not in here because I'm just waiting for someone just to stick their claws into me. So that wasn't fun, but again, a minor thing. Um, some very cool developments on the Try Not to Die front. Uh, we are going to go ahead with the contest on November 22nd. Still don't have those prizes figured out, uh, but that will be in the dark and disturbing, fear-filled fiction um so we'll be doing that and uh yeah so that will start on a monday uh, i'll put that out in the newsletter once i have the prize figured out and everything else talking with another author a pretty big author about uh possibly doing one either in his world or an original and after that i was like i gotta stop well and actually there's one more yesterday uh, my son's friend i've been i've been talking to his father turns out his father's a writer really like him a lot uh, he loved the idea of a try not to die. And so yesterday he came over in the backyard. We were just working on his, which is kind of like a try not to die at an amusement park, just figuring it out. But I know it would be a cool story. I know it would be, it'd be fun. It'd be good. It's going to be good for him. And it's one of those ones where it could just be, okay, we're just going to develop this slowly over the course of, you know, these play dates. You know, while I'm, our sons will be having their little play date, him and I can write. We could plot stuff out. I'll give him assignments and tell him, okay, you work on this now. And then when it comes around, when he's finished with it, he'll give it to me. I can clean it up. So that way I'm not putting in a ton of time just because I have so many of these things. And that's one last, uh, one last thing I want to touch on was I need to really figure out what I want to do career-wise. Like what is my... What is my calling? What is my passion? What is my, you know, what am I here to do? And I don't really believe that shit, like that we each have a purpose. But what is what is the best use of my time? You know, and what do I want to accomplish? Um, part of me wants to, you know, put the trying to die kind of back on the back burner where they used to be. And when they get done, they get done. But I decided, well, the Try Not to Dies is probably the book series that is going to, has the most potential to uh, make me a breakout author, to get all my stuff read, um, which would be amazing because I do want to make money for myself and for, more importantly, for my authors, uh, my co-authors. Um, lots of them could really use it. And if Try Not to Die does well, then my other books will do well. So I don't even need to make money off of the Try Not to Die. I'm kind of using that as a springboard for my other stuff. So you know, trying to do three to four books a year, which is what we have planned, which they're all being in development. I think it's very doable. That means I'm not going to have a lot of time to do other stuff. Um, as even, even for the authors that are able to do most of the writing themselves, like Sage, Sage Ricci, 
who is doing the Wizard's Tower, which is about to come out. I didn't do a whole lot on that book. Um, you know, I was more of an editor. I did very, very little writing. It was more editing. Uh, it was all Sage's story. He created it all. He did all the artwork. He did everything else. He even did the formatting. He's going to do the audiobook. So there's still still a little time consuming on my end, on the publishing side of it, figuring things out, uh, arranging stuff, having talks, all that kind of stuff. You know, so for those books, it's a lot easier. But so the main question is, okay, do I put off everything else? Do I put off? I have um, Tales of the Blessed and Broken, Ain't No Messiah. That's a five book series. Book two has been sitting halfway done forever. I also was adding in um, Tales of the Blessed and Broken, the early years, which is like kind of before book two. Uh, I was super excited about that. I wanted to jump on that. And then all these things come, came up. And so it's hard for me to even imagine a time where I'm going to have time to jump back into that because right now I'm trying to do, well, I've just set it to the side for now, but I had been working on trying to die in the wild west. Um, you know, that's going to take a, a good amount of time to finish up that rewrite. Um, then super high, actually super high is already in, in really good shape. I'm just waiting on Steve Montgomery to give me that back. That one's pretty much, I'm considering that one pretty much done on my end. Like I'm going to read through it again, then give it to my editor and then, you know, the back and forth, but time-wise that's doable. The one that Caitlin's working on, she'll do an incredible job on that. I probably won't have to do a lot, but um, still a lot of work. And then there's also my fantasy trilogy the one I have tattooed on my back that I was going to write with my family. Like that one was plotted out, everything else. But when am I really going to get to it? If I'm doing all these Try Not to Dies, and maybe it's something where, okay, all these things are just going to wait five years while I do Try Not to Die, you know, get up 20, 25 of them, and then stop. But at that point, I was like, would I even want to stop it at that point? So I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's not important for me to make the decision yet, um, but it's definitely in my head. It's like, okay, which, what should I be doing? Where do I focus my time? Where do I focus my energy? Um, and especially right now with so much of my focus and energy being redirected into myself and my family, you know, so it's a little bit less time to get creative and do these things. And because I'm a dumb shit and I do, well, not a dumb shit, but because I'm ambitious and I think outside the box, one of the things I want to do as well is, even though I say I never want to do nonfiction again, I'm probably going to do one more nonfiction. The idea right now is when I go get the book to these MMA fighters, um, there's going to be about, you know, I'll handpick about 10, 10 of the bigger names or guys that are uh, mean more to me, men and women, uh, that I have a better connection with. I would like to, you know, give them the book and then have an honest discussion about their mental health possibly put them through the same protocol that I went through, the ones that need it, and then document how they respond to it. Um, so on my end, it wouldn't be a lot of work uh, and probably do a documentary at it. I, it would mainly be, you know, the initial interview, um, figuring out all the work that they need, you know, sending them to the right doctors, and then a secondary interview to follow up to see what the changes are. And then simply putting that into book format, which wouldn't be very difficult. So now I think I have a better idea of how to make things manageable, how to do it. So, but again, that's just one other thing that I'm talking about doing. So, um, yeah, 
So very ambitious. Let's just let's let's leave it at that. So ambitious, but also uh, I don't know, trying to figure out the best way to do it, the smartest way to do it, the most efficient way to do things, and that's going to help me a lot. So today I need to put out this podcast, do my newsletter. Both of those are very doable. I need to set up some ads. I need to finalize everything for the TBI book, which comes out on Tuesday. Please tell your friends and family about that. Um, there was one other thing. Oh, and then I also need to put out the press release in English and German today. So it's ready for Tuesday's launch and, uh, let the whole world know about these books. So that is it. I'm got my work cut out for me today. I'm sure you've got plenty of stuff to do as well. Let's go out on beyond Brightside, chapters 14 and 15 narrated by Darren Elliker. Hope you guys are digging it. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you next week. Later. Chapter 14 It had just turned 9 o'clock when I dropped the last batch of items into the box on the kitchen table. Brendan's blue jeans were baggy on me, but didn't look ridiculous. I slipped his windbreaker on my good arm and shrugged it over the sling, tucked the front in. I doubted it'd fool anyone, but perhaps I could pull it off. The Vicodin had taken away some of the soreness, but all the walking around the house had made my ankle angry, Danny's tape job coming loose. Using scissors, I cut several lengths of the silver duct tape and secured that foot so it could barely move. I tried it out by walking over to the fridge, pulling out a Coke so I could make a real drink. If I hadn't made the promise to Becky, I would have taken another pill, but seeing how there was no lying to one another, I slipped the bottle into the windbreaker and settled for the whiskey. When I set my empty glass beside the sink, there was a noise by the back door. Everything stopped my hand drawing the 9mm Glock I'd found in the living room. The low scratching sound came again from the door. I eased forward, kept the gun steady, aiming a foot up and over from the knob. There was another scratch, followed by the tiniest cry. <sighs> Shit, we'd both completely forgotten about Mello. So I wouldn't spook the little guy. I eased open the door and took my time getting to a knee. The backyard was empty except for Mello mewing at the top stair. No need for my gun. I holstered it and let him have at my hand, mushing his face against my fingers. There wasn't much chance of not hurting his leg with only the one hand to pick him up, but I couldn't leave him on the porch. I laid my hand flat and slid it under his body, raised him up with a whimper. I didn't see anywhere soft to lay Mello, so I took him into the living room and set him on the recliner, told him I'd be right back. There wasn't any cat food in the kitchen, but I put together a bowl of broken-up hamburger and a slice of cheese I got from the fridge. Mello devoured the food, licking the bowl clean. When he was finished, Mello cuddled on my lap, snoring for twenty minutes. I thought of getting up to refill my empty glass on the TV tray, but didn't want to be shit-faced in front of Becky. And I could imagine Sarah now, bitching at me for my irresponsibility. How I always disregard everyone else's safety and only think of myself. It was ten minutes past ten, a full three hours since we'd left Sarah and Danny. Every time my mind went to those two, I bent it back to Mello or Becky or the next unlucky motherfucker who would cross my path. I didn't want to put my worries and responsibilities on Becky. But the thought of our friends freaking out on their own with Kevin dead in the safe room made me sick. 
The last thing I wanted was for Becky to think I was choosing Sarah and Danny over her, but I needed to know if she was planning on spending the night. At first, I'd thought that'd be crazy, but the later it got, the more dangerous it'd be for us to drive around when there was no traffic. As carefully as could be, I eased Mello onto the recliner, managed to get up without waking him. Outside Becky's door, I called her name, asked if I could come in. She didn't answer. I wrapped my knuckle on the door. Becky, can we talk? Again, no answer. I did it louder. Three solid knocks. Wondered whether she was asleep or just avoiding me. I gave it a few seconds, then opened the door. The light was on, so I walked inside. Made it two steps when suddenly she burst off her bed, the short sword she'd been sharpening slicing toward my head. I threw myself back, caught the doorknob with my hip, the blade barely whizzing by my face. Becky's mouth dropped, then the sword, the metal bouncing off the carpet. She ripped out her earbuds and screamed, What in the world were you thinking? The pain killed any politeness. I knocked. What the hell were you thinking? Becky held out her hand, motioned at me as a whole. Look at yourself. I turned to the mirror above her desk, saw I was still wearing the windbreaker and decked out like a boot. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. I found all this stuff. Figured it could help. Help give me a heart attack? Jesus, Joe. Becky picked up the katana and sat back on the bed, took the sharpening stone along the blade, which was about the length of her arm. Just wish you'd warned me. The tops of her desk and dresser were covered with trophies, her walls with medals and ribbons, photos of her looking like a superhero in a brightly colored skin-tight suit. Becky saw where I was looking. Rash garden spats, what we wear instead of a gi. I didn't know what a gi was, but nodded anyway, trying to count the medals. Forty-three. Sounding beaten, Becky said, and this is what I've got to show for it. My whole life comes down to a bunch of worthless metals. Well, not that it's much consolation, but it's a thousand times cooler than any shit I've ever done. I could see she didn't believe me. Seriously. Come on, you're a fucking badass. Most kids your age haven't done a damn thing. The kid remark rubbed her the wrong way, but Becky just told me, forget I said anything. So what's the deal? I motioned at her sword. You planning on going all ninja on me? She ran the stone down the blade one last time and set it on the bed. I won it last year. Never used it, just thought it couldn't hurt. We came a little too close to proving that wrong. Becky gave a quick smile, both hands holding the bed, her eyes on mine. So what did you want? I hated being put on the spot and went with the good news first. I pointed at my belt and said, so, besides all the gear on here, we got an extra gun and a good amount of ammo. She nodded. You realize we can't win a showdown? Yeah, I know. But it could help us escape. We got the radio and can listen in. I'm even thinking we go Star Wars on them. How much did you drink? Not much. Star Wars? I'm just saying we got a disguise. Become stormtroopers like Luke and Han. Maybe it'll get us in somewhere, you know. So we can find your parents. Becky hadn't seen that coming. Are you serious? You'll do that with me? Of course. Her face softened. Thanks, Joe. I also took care of Mello, got him keeping me company in the living room. Oh, I totally forgot, she said, beating herself up until I told her to knock it off. I'm going to get him. 
Just a sec, all right? What? Sarah and Danny. What about them? She said, back to business. That's the thing. I don't know what to do about them. I wish I could call and tell them something, but I don't even know what to say. What do you want to tell them? I don't know. I guess that we're okay. I studied her eyes, looked for a reaction when I said that we'd see them tomorrow when it's safe to go back. So what happened to finding my parents? Well, I'd rather have help. Becky shook her head, disappointed I believed that. Sarah would never allow it. So we don't go back? Becky wanted to say yes, but said, I want to stay here, but I know we shouldn't. At least for the night? You give me that and we go back for them tomorrow, see if they want to join us. I agreed. But I don't know how to get hold of them. Becky reached into her back pocket and pulled out a folded piece of paper. She handed it over with Kevin's phone and said, Sarah's number. Not counting Brendan, I had the living room all to myself. Becky had scooped up Mello, giving me privacy so I could make my call. The number I wanted to call wasn't the one on the paper. The number I punched wasn't Sarah's. I wanted to hit dial, but there'd be no one to answer it. Dad who knows where and Mom headless because of us. I didn't watch the rest of the news, so I wasn't sure if they mentioned my mother's name or if Sarah would even catch it if they did. But I guessed she would, and she'd be worried sick, hoping I hadn't seen it, worried I might call it quits. I erased Mom's number and typed in Sarah's. The phone rang four times, and I was about to hang up when it clicked on. She didn't say anything, so I checked if it was her. Sarah? Like there was someone standing outside her door, Sarah whispered, What are you doing? Where are you? About 15, 20 minutes away, but we can't get back there. Not tonight. She gasped. What? I'm sorry. More of an accusation than a question, she asked. You know what happened. To Kevin? Yes, to Kevin. Danny said it was an accident. He did it because of you, she said, her hatred coming through loud and clear. I didn't say a word, wasn't sure I even could. In the background, Danny shouted, Not Joe's fault. There was a loud blast down the street, followed by two more. I nearly dropped the phone, realized I'd stopped breathing. Joe, you okay? I cleared my throat, made sure I could talk. Sorry, uh, I'm here. Back on the attack, Sarah said, You abandoned us. We couldn't leave if we wanted to. I'm sorry, but neither one of us is in any shape to be driving. That's why I said not to go. I had to. Have you been drinking? Some bad shit went down, I said, my finger ready to end the call. We'll be back tomorrow. Yeah, let's just hope Danny and I are still here, right? I ignored her remark. We got more supplies, another gun. She humped. Like that'll help. I was tired of everything I said getting shot down. Well, it's better than fucking nothing. Sarah didn't say anything. I didn't either, and just hung up. She could hit redial if she wanted to, but I wasn't holding my breath. I'd chosen sides, and she hadn't won. Night 4 Chapter 15 Joe, wake up. A hand nudged my good arm. I want to leave as soon as it gets dark. It took me a second to open my eyes and remember where I was, the smell of Brendan's shit bringing me right back. Becky stood beside the recliner in his zippered black hoodie, Kevin's holster and Melvin's thirty-eight just showing beneath it. You could have slept in one of the beds. 
I cleared my throat and motioned at the front door. I wanted to be ready. Well, I appreciate it. Becky picked up the Vicodin, tried to hide she was counting pills. How are you doing with these? Make me all itchy, but they help. Would you mind getting another one for me? She handed me a pill and waited until I swallowed it. I'm impressed. You kept your promise. The Glock rested on the armrest. I put it in the holster and said, Yeah, you'd be surprised what I'm capable of. It's almost five o'clock, so I'm guessing we have about thirty minutes before we can move? I pushed off the recliner, winced when I put weight on my bad foot. Jesus, Joe, your toes shouldn't be that color. Danny's taping got too loose, so I had to use the duct tape. Well, we've got to redo it. I shrugged her off. At our next stop, I need to walk. Becky walked over to the front window and peeked past the drapes. Did you hear any of the gunshots today? Sounded like they were just down the street. Nah, I was out. There were two backpacks on the table beside the box I'd packed. You watch the news? Any developments? She let the drape go and shook her head. Didn't bother. It's just the same stuff over and over about how awful we are. It'd make me hate myself if I didn't already. So I've done a lot of thinking. Our destination? And what to do with these guys, she said, nodding at the blanket covering Brendan. I can only imagine how much evidence we've left. I don't think two more counts of murder are going to make a difference. Yeah, but if they know we were here, it'll only help them track us. I suppose. Becky steeled her face and said, So we burn it down. Help me get them into my parents' room and we'll torch it. You sure? My parents will never get the house back, but who knows, maybe there's a chance they can get the insurance money. I wondered if her parents were still alive, but smashed that thought down. Let's do it. Becky walked over to Brendan and tossed his blanket aside. She grabbed hold of his wrists and pulled him off the couch, his heavy body hitting the floor with a loud thud. I picked up his left leg to help, but two steps in and we realized I'd be better suited as a cheerleader. Becky slid Brendan into the hallway, past Debbie and next to her parents' bed. While she struggled getting his limp body on the mattress, I uncovered Debbie. I bent over and wiped the hair from her face as if giving her a little dignity in death made it okay that I killed her. From the bedroom, Becky said, Ew, that's so gross. I didn't want to ask what it was. Figured it probably had something to do with the snail trail of shit sliming the floor. I grabbed Debbie's wrist to see if I could pull her on my own, but when I started tugging, there was a loud buzz beneath her. Debbie's hand fell to the floor as I went for my gun. I was shaking when I realized it was just a phone in her back pocket. The iPhone looked brand new in its shiny purple case. I couldn't unlock the phone to check the three unread texts until I used Debbie's fingerprint to swipe it open. I scrolled through the settings and disabled all the security. The sun was minutes from going down, and I had Sarah's number on Kevin's phone, waiting for Becky to finish a final run through the house. I'd told Sarah we'd call when we were leaving. It still made me sick to think we'd left those two alone. And not just alone, but with a dead body. And even though it was Danny who did the killing, Kevin's blood was on my hands. I was the leader of the pack, the one showing them it was fine to kill anyone who crossed us, intentionally or not. Becky came out of the hallway with two duffel bags. I've been doing more thinking. Yeah? We should take his truck. If we need to go off-roading again, I'd rather be in that than the Prius. Our escape from the freeway and through the park wasn't exactly what I'd call off-roading, but I got her point. Plus, we'll have more room in the back for whatever we want to take. 
She held up the bags. I got all my important gear. There's just one more bag and the box in the kitchen. I set down the phone and slipped my foot into Brendan's right boot, a good fit with the three pair of socks. The left was snug with just one sock thanks to all the swelling. You give much thought to where we should head? Becky set her stuff by the front door. We'll find another safe house somewhere. Hell, we'll find a cave to live in if we have to. We have friends here. She looked at me sideways. The underground? Yeah. Look, I'm glad Tone was watching out for us, but like he said, he's just one guy, and we can't rely on him. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence. I'd already decided I wouldn't fight Becky on any decision. Everything came with a risk, and her say was more important than mine. I nodded and said, I get it. The keys are on the table. Anything you need to get from Kevin's car? She shook her head. Just need the gasoline from the garage. Be right back. I held up the phone. It's fine if I call her? Becky headed for the kitchen. Tell them they've got 15 minutes. The back door closed and I hit dial. I expected Sarah to answer on the first ring. Then the second. For sure by the third. Fourth. Fifth. It went to the default voicemail. A computerized woman saying to please leave a message. I hung up and redialed. Five rings. No answer. The possible reasons rattled around my brain. Sarah was dead. Danny was dead. She had it on vibrate, set it somewhere she couldn't hear. Maybe she was in the bathroom. She had to be okay. The back door closed. The lock turned. The smell of gasoline hit me before Becky turned the corner with the can in one hand, a long lighter in her other. She stopped. What's wrong? I shook my head and redialed. She hasn't picked up. Put it down. It rang twice. What? I'm supposed to call. She's probably just in the bathroom or something. Becky shook her head. She wouldn't do that. My finger was ready to cut off the message, but then the phone clicked on. Sarah didn't say anything, so I asked, Are you there? Becky's eyes got big. Joe, hang it up. I stopped talking, but gave it another second until Becky thought, Now! That wasn't her. She snatched the phone from me and said, We've got to go. You don't know that. Yeah, well, neither do you. She disappeared down the hallway. Get everything by the door. We're out of here. We hadn't discussed Mello so I was happy to see him lying in a carrier balanced on the gym bag Becky brought out from the hallway, her sheathed sword sticking out the top. Will it spread? Think it's big enough? Becky nodded. We gotta go. I pointed to the box on the kitchen table. I couldn't get that one, but I can take your bag. Becky set down her bag and scooped up the box. She started saying something, but cut herself short, held up one finger. Not a word. The smoke drifted around the corner from down the hall a fine stream of gray heading for the open window. She pointed toward the back door, other hand on her holster. There's at least two of them. Just entered the yard. Cops. Boots. We each had a gun, but wouldn't win if we went down that path. They'd surround us if we took too long. Becky was quiet on the outside, but freaking out as she fumbled with her jacket and holster, trying to get the thirty-eight. I got an idea, but didn't like it. Shit, I said moving to the back door. It's the only way. What are you doing? I tucked in the front of the windbreaker so it covered my sling and slipped on Brendan's hat. It's our only chance. You hide in the living room and surprise them. Use the gun as a last resort. 
She nodded and backed up. I went silent. Couldn't hear anything but Mello's sad mewing. Tell me what you can. You think either of them knows Brendan, what he looks like? Knowing I couldn't hear her thoughts from that range, Becky whispered, I can't tell. I'd give another name. Say Brendan's down. I put the gun in my weak hand so I could turn the knob. Praying the boots would be slow to shoot, I opened the door and yelled like I knew them. Agent Patterson's down, and I'm hit. Uh, they're in the back room, and there's a fire. I kept all my focus on the kitchen, switching hands and aiming at the doorway, imagining Becky popping around the corner and opening fire, paying me back for what I'd done to her. I must have been convincing because neither of them blew me away. The first boot looked like he should still be in college, ready to follow orders. I told him, the big guy in the back's got a knife, bit in my shoulder. There's been no gunfire. He said, yes, sir, and slipped past me. The second guy stopped beside me, but never took his eyes off his partner, who was halfway across the kitchen, nearly to Mello. I tried to imagine where Becky was hiding and thought as loud as I could. They're coming, about six feet apart. My entire body was shaking, sweat dripping off my chin. The smoke swirled thick, the crackle of flames covering the boots creeping forward, the first guy nearly to the doorway. He took another step, and there was a flash of silver, a foot of metal ripping through the back of his neck. His gun fell to the ground, both hands clutching the sword, only for it to flay them when Becky jerked it back out before she retreated around the corner. The second boot yelled, Garner! and aimed his weapon as his partner fell face first, thudding off the table and onto the carpet. I closed the distance, afraid I'd miss it anything other than point-blank range. I was three feet back when he said, I'll cover you. I didn't know if this was standard protocol or if he was just scared. I aimed at his head and tried squeezing the trigger, but couldn't do it. Not with him just standing there, not seeing it coming. That was worse than cheating. I told him, you go. He glanced back, looked down my barrel. He swiveled toward me and Becky swung around the corner. Either he heard Becky or saw my eyes because he spun back to her. I couldn't shoot with Becky rushing right at us, sword above her shoulder. It was too close to tell who was going to win the race. I put everything I had into my leap forward slamming the butt of the Glock at his head. The thunk rippled all the way up my arm. He collapsed to the floor, and I tripped on top of him, coming down hard on my injured shoulder, screaming on impact. Shush! Becky stepped on the boot submachine gun and slid it behind her. Get up, Joe. We've got to leave. I rolled onto my side, right into a spreading puddle of blood, felt the warmth through the windbreaker. Becky used the dish towel to wipe off her blade. Grab their guns and let's go. More will be here any second. I couldn't get up without her help, but once I was on my feet, I powered after her, biting down the pain. With two guns in hand and one in my holster, I followed Becky out the door, smoke pouring above our heads. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.